do, folks. Oh. My name is Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I'm a lawyer, and I live in Springfield, Illinois, with my wife, Mary, and one-year-old son, Robert. Every spring and fall, I travel the 8th Judicial Circuit, which brings me through Coles County. So naturally, I try to stop and see my father and stepmother at Gooseness Prairie. Well, you folks enjoy your visit here on Father's Farm, and come back to visit any time. Was that you on the voice recording? It was. It was, okay. It was, yes. Welcome to Drinking with Lincoln from WNIJ, where we explore Abraham Lincoln's life, land, and legacy through the eyes of the people who know him best, Lincoln presenters. Each episode, we'll learn a little about Lincoln's life, and then I'll sit down with our guest for a drink, maybe two, and get their take on America's 16th president. I'll also learn about the presenters themselves, where they come from, why they do what they do, what makes them Lincoln. I'm your host, Clint Cargyle. I'm an author, historian, and professional Lincoln appreciator. And before we begin... I'd just like to wish Abraham Lincoln a happy birthday. This episode won't post until after February 12th, but that happens to be the day I am recording this. So happy 210th birthday, Honest Abe, the rail splitter, the giant killer, America's most popular president. Now let's get started. Today's guest Lincoln is Joe Woodard. The beauty of the snake fence is that you can take it down and put it up somewhere else, but it takes more takes more rails to cover the same perimeter. Joe is a unique Lincoln presenter in that he is beardless. Clean-shaven, whisker-free, not even a hint of Lincoln's signature chin curtain. This actually helped him over his 30 years as a Lincoln presenter, because Lincoln did not grow his beard until the 1860 election when he was 51 years old. So any portrayal of Lincoln before that should be beardless. When WILL-TV put together its documentary, Lincoln, Prelude to Presidency, they needed someone to portray Lincoln's early days as a lawyer riding the Illinois 8th Judicial Circuit. So they contacted Joe. My fellow citizens... My politics are short and sweet, like the old woman's dance. No duty is more incumbent upon the federal government than that of providing the people a sound and uniform currency. The seed of this episode was planted back in episode one, when I interviewed Lincoln presenter Kevin Wood. While talking about his Lincoln beard, I asked if he ever shaved it off, which instantly led me to backpedal to this thought. I guess without the beard, though, it might be hard to pull off. Uh, people it's, might not recognize you. People would not. The that's, beard, that's the difficulty: is you don't necessarily recognize the person as right. Abraham Lincoln without the beard. Okay. So you, you need some context. But after the interview, Kevin also backpedaled and told me that he knew a Lincoln presenter who specializes as a beardless Lincoln. Kevin had met him through the Association of Lincoln Presenters and encouraged me to reach out to him. So that is what I did. And it just so happens that Joe Woodard, the beardless Lincoln, lives south of Charleston, Illinois, the seat of Coles County a place bursting in Lincoln history. Charleston is designated as one of six gateway cities by the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area, a collective of 42 counties in central Illinois dedicated to sharing the history of Abraham Lincoln. Charleston's designation as a gateway city is appropriate, because the more I researched, the more I realized Charleston is a crossroads for every major chapter of Lincoln's life and career, from Lincoln's humble beginnings to his greatest heights. When Thomas Lincoln first moved his family from Indiana to Illinois, they passed through or near the site of present-day Charleston. Lincoln's father later moved to a farm just south of the city, where he lived the rest of his life. As a lawyer in Springfield, Lincoln's work on the 8th Judicial Circuit regularly sent him through Charleston. He'd use the opportunity to drop in on his family. While Charleston wasn't actually a part of the 8th Judicial Circuit, Lincoln still tried cases there, including one of the more controversial of his career, in which he had to choose between protecting runaway slaves or defending the slave owner. Years later, as a political candidate, one of the seven Lincoln-Douglas debates was held in Charleston. And finally, as president-elect, Lincoln returned in 1861 to visit his stepmother and his many friends and relatives before traveling to Washington for his inauguration. So Charleston is rife with Lincoln history, and that doesn't even include the 72-foot Lincoln statue that resides at a vacant lake resort just outside of town. At nearly half the height of the Statue of Liberty, it's the tallest Lincoln statue in the world. That's right, in the world. And then there's a series of 12 Lincoln statues carved with chainsaws that used to be on display with the world's tallest Lincoln statue. They're gone now, but where did they go? So my sound engineer Spencer and I packed up our gear and headed downstate to the heart of Lincoln land. I'm excited because I consider all of Illinois to be Lincoln's stomping grounds, but central Illinois is where he stomped the most. We've got a lot to cover this episode, and I'll go ahead and tell you, Lincoln's relationship to Coles County is complicated. A lot of what we learn there goes against the grain of Lincoln lore. This is the episode of Drinking with Lincoln, where Lincoln gets messy. Abraham Lincoln Abraham 
We meet up with Joe at the Lincoln Log Cabin State Historic Site, an 86-acre living history homestead south of Charleston. It recreates the farm where Lincoln's father and stepmother once lived. In Lincoln's time, the farm was known as Goose Nest Prairie. It's been a tourist attraction since the 1930s, when it was restored as part of a Civilian Conservation Corps project. We find Joe standing in the lobby, wearing his full Lincoln getup, black suit, black stovepipe hat. He's six foot one, so he's got Lincoln stature, but sure enough, no beard. And it works. I mean, the hat is a dead giveaway, but he's clearly Lincoln. He greets us warmly and hands me a business card. It features a silhouette of Lincoln on horseback with the tagline, Before Secession, Before the Presidency, Before the Beard. Joe then offers to show us around, because unbeknownst to us, before he was Lincoln, he spent many years as a volunteer here at the Log Cabin Historic Site. Joe walks us through the Lincoln family's arrival in Illinois, how they traveled from Indiana in 1830, made their way through Coles County, possibly through the fledgling town of Charleston itself, and eventually settled 60 miles away just outside Decatur. But all did not go well that first winter. The first full winter they spent in Illinois was the winter of the deep snow. They had snow and freezing rain for about two weeks, followed by intense cold. Intense and unrelieved cold. It was harsh, even by Illinois standards. A lot of livestock died, a lot of wildlife, and so did a lot of people. Thomas Lincoln came to Illinois for a better life and a fresh start for his family, but that's not what he found there. When spring came, Tom Lincoln decided that uh, if this be Illinois, I'm headed back to Indiana. But uh, on their way back to Indiana... The Lincolns stopped here in Coles County for a rest, and they met some people they had known back in Indiana. And they persuaded Tom Lincoln that that was not the usual Illinois winter, and he ought to give Illinois another chance. So that's how the Lincolns came to settle in Coles County. But did Abraham go there with them? At that time, Abraham Lincoln was over 21, and he decided it was time for him to go out on his own. So he took a job with a man named Denton Offutt to take a flatboat and a load of goods down to New Orleans. After that, he and Denton Offutt moved to New Salem, and that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so Abe's off finding himself in New Salem while his family settles down for the very first time without him. We're just about to go off and explore a few more exhibits when Joe accidentally leans against a button on one of the history displays. How do, folks? Oh. My name is Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I'm a lawyer, and I live in Springfield, Illinois, with my wife, Mary, and one-year-old son, Robert. Every spring and fall, I travel the 8th Judicial Circuit, which brings me through Coles County. So naturally, I try to stop and see my father and stepmother at Gooseness Prairie. That's actually Joe. He recorded this narration several years ago. Father farms 120 acres here. Actually, I own 40 of those acres. I brought them from father back in 1841 to help him out. That way, too, he and mother will always have a place to live, even if my stepbrother John D. Johnston gets his hands on the rest. We move on to look at several old photographs of the cabin, some of them featuring a few of Lincoln's relatives posing outside. I asked Joe if the cabin now standing at the site, just a short walk from the visitor center, was the original structure that Thomas Lincoln had built, the place his son would visit when he came through town. It's not the original house. This is a picture of the original house as it was in the 1890s, and it was taken down with the intention of putting it back together and displaying it at the World's Fair. They took drawings and pictures and all to help them put back together. I thought it was pretty cool that the cabin was displayed at the World's Fair, so I asked Joe why it wasn't brought back afterward and rebuilt on its original site. As it happened, it was not displayed at the World's Fair, and the issue of what happened to the original is up in the air. There's several stories, and we can't say for sure what did happen to it. Some think that it was the influence of Abraham Lincoln's sole surviving son, Robert. Instead of being proud of his father's humble origins. He's a little bit embarrassed by it. In many ways, he took after his mother's side of the family, the Todds, rather than after the Lincolns. But that's another story, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so the location of the original cabin remains a mystery. One unverified story says it may have been burned as firewood. But how did the current structure come about? Because based on the pictures I'm looking at on the wall, the cabin that's here now looks to be a near-perfect replica. Some public-spirited citizens bought some of the land that was his farm and donated it to the state. And in the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps made a reproduction of his house. They did find the original foundations, so it's on the same site. Not only is it on the same site, 
They had all the pictures and blueprints that were made back in the 1890s when the cabin was disassembled and sent to the World's Fair. So even though the cabin disappeared, those pictures and blueprints did not, and engineers were able to use them to recreate the cabin down to the finest detail. Next we head out to the cabin itself. I should note that outside the visitor center, the cabin and its grounds remain frozen in time. No matter when you visit, it's always 1845. During the summer months, there would be living history reenactors there, working the land, demonstrating the tools and trades of 1845. But we're there in the winter. It's cold, it's rainy, we're the only ones around. After strolling down a paved path and through a barn, we arrive at the cabin. This is what's known as a saddlebag cabin. You have a crib on each side of a central chimney, like two saddlebags, one on each side of a horse. Here on this side, there's a door between the two cribs. On one side, there's the hallway, and the other side, there's a sort of a closet. You know, it's not actually that small. One room is outfitted as a bedroom, the other a kitchen, dining, living area. There's a loft for children to sleep in. It's probably bigger than most rural cabins of that time. But Joe points out that in 1845, this two-room structure was occupied by Lincoln's father and stepmother, his two grown step-siblings, their spouses, and their children. Behind the cabin, we find the original well. Joe doesn't know if it's still being used, but it has water in it. He tells me how kids used to throw rocks down the well to listen for the kerplunk. I would try to say, now, if everybody that came here did that, <laughs> I said, Tom Lincoln wouldn't have a well anymore pretty soon. <laughs> It'd be filled up. There are also several live animals on location. It is a working farm, after all. Joe tells me they know what animals Lincoln had because of the agricultural census records of that time. I asked him if he knew the specific animals Lincoln kept based on those records. I didn't commit that to memory, but the 40 and 50 census, there would have been an actual record. <laughs> he didn't have anything when the 1860 census came. That's a little gallows humor on Joe's part. Thomas Lincoln died in 1851. That's why he didn't have anything in the 1860 census. But that got me curious about Thomas Lincoln, because I don't know a whole lot about him. So I asked Joe to talk about the relationship between Thomas and his only son. At this remove, there's some sort of a rift between father and son. And it's a rift that Lincoln's scholars can't really explain. Abraham Lincoln is Thomas's only living natural child, and by all accounts, they did not get along. Some scholars claim that Thomas Lincoln was too harsh on young Abraham, scolding him, whipping him, even beating him. An uneducated man, Thomas interpreted Abe's obsession with reading as laziness, shirking his duties on the farm. He would punish Abe for burying his nose in books, and Abe always resented him for it, resented that his father couldn't see the ambition in his son, or have any ambition of his own. Other scholars dispute these accounts, claiming the stories of abuse are exaggerated, that Thomas doled out only the occasional whipping or scolding, nothing beyond the norm for that time. Either way, Lincoln never had a nice thing to say about his father, but plenty of other people did. Many of Thomas Lincoln's friends and relatives went on record defending him, speaking of his hard work and good genial nature. They described him as always being ready with a joke or a story, and that he was a better storyteller than his son. Some say that it was from watching his dad that Abe became such a good storyteller himself, a skill that informed his entire career. And Sarah Bush Lincoln, Abe's stepmother, claimed that Thomas went out of his way to ensure young Abe had time to read his books. It's been suggested that Thomas was angry at his only natural son for leaving home at a time when Thomas's health was failing, forcing him to rely more on his stepchildren. Perhaps Lincoln thought Thomas favored his stepchildren more than him. But Joe casts a positive light on Lincoln's family situation when describing how Lincoln and his stepbrother communicated through letters. It's interesting that John used the term father. He didn't say your father. And when Lincoln wrote about Sir Bush Johnston, Lincoln, he said mother. He didn't say, your mother, for whatever significance that has. Now, I can't be sure that it's significant, but I think it's significant that it was one of those blended families that was successful. Whatever the case, it is complicated. But Lincoln would still visit over the years, and he also provided financial assistance, including purchasing the 40 acres from his father to ensure that his father and stepmother would always have a place to live, no matter their financial situation. Even so, Abraham Lincoln's stepmother and his wife never met and his father never met his wife his father never met Lincoln's children any of Lincoln's children Lincoln did not attend his father's funeral his um, 
stepbrother, John Johnston, wrote him a letter that said, Father is very low and not expected to live. The gist of it was that Tom Lincoln wanted to see his son one more time before he died. And uh, Lincoln wrote back and said that he, he had a sick wife and sick baby at the time and he couldn't come. It would be doubtful whether it would be more painful than not for him to come. Thomas Lincoln died on January 17, 1851. Lincoln's reaction seems pretty harsh, but so is not letting your father or stepmother ever meet your wife or children, their grandchildren. But it should be noted that when Lincoln responded to his brother's letter, he claimed that he could not leave because his wife was, quote, sick abed with, quote, baby sickness. Mary Lincoln had given birth to their third son, Willie, less than a month before. So it's not like Lincoln was making it up. And two years later, when the Lincolns had their fourth son, they named him Thomas in honor of Lincoln's father. You might be able to tell from those clips, Joe is clearly affected by the stories of Abe's relationship with his father. In defense of Thomas, Joe tells me the story of Dennis Hanks. I am not entirely sure of what degree of cousin, but he was a a cousin of Abraham Lincoln's mother, Nancy Hanks, and in Indiana, Dennis was living with the Sparrows, who were also kin to Nancy Hanks, when the Sparrows died of what they called then the milk sick. And uh, Dennis then came to live with Tom and Nancy. And uh, once again, there's not every man that would take in a 12-year-old boy who's just a cousin of his wife. So I think that speaks well for Tom Lincoln, too. Dennis and young Abe became like brothers, especially after Abe's mother died. A lot of the information we have about Lincoln's early years comes from Dennis's recollections. He was also the one who encouraged Thomas Lincoln to move the family to Illinois. Dennis Hanks remained a resident of Charleston the rest of his life. He died at age 93. His gravestone in Charleston reads, Tutor of the Martyred President, Abraham Lincoln. Thomas Lincoln Cemetery sits just off Lincoln Highway Road, about two miles west of the log cabin site. Of course, the cemetery wasn't called that when he was buried there. It was renamed in 1935 in honor of its most famous resident. Thomas's grave is so famous now that it has two markers, a large marble one that was placed there in 1880. And when that became damaged by souvenir seekers, it was moved to another part of the cemetery and replaced in 1924 with the sturdier granite monument that stands there still. So this is the final resting place of Thomas and Sarah Bush Lincoln, father and stepmother of our martyred president. Their humble but worthy home gave to the world Abraham Lincoln. Always seems like a a good idea to stop and look at a grave and then when you do it. On January 31st, 1861, Abraham Lincoln stood where we are standing now. Just him and his stepmother. Lincoln, 51, had just been elected president of the United States, though he had not yet been sworn into office. This was the first and only time Abraham Lincoln visited his father's grave. Ten years had passed since Thomas Lincoln's death, and there was no gravestone, only a rough board with the initials TL carved into them. Some stories say there was no marker at all, that it was Lincoln who carved and left the board. He'd arrived in Charleston the night before. Few people knew he was coming, not even the press. Those who did expect his arrival would have been surprised to see his newly grown beard, the first he'd ever worn. Lincoln had wanted to escape the clamor of Springfield, the endless meetings with advisors and political climbers and favor seekers. In less than two weeks, he traveled to Washington for his inauguration, but he needed to come to Charleston first. His one purpose, to say goodbye to his stepmother, and possibly his father. We're standing there in the cold, drizzling rain. It's a really ugly day, and I'm wondering if this was the kind of day it was when Lincoln was here. He had once described his stepmother as, quote, his best friend in this world, declaring that, quote, no son could love a mother more than he loved her. What words passed between them that day? No one knows. At the time that they stood there, before Lincoln took office, six states had seceded from the Union. A seventh, Texas, would secede the next day. Lincoln must have known what was coming. His stepmother had already shared with relatives her fear that Lincoln would not survive his presidency, that Southerners would kill him. Based on this, she would have believed that this was the last time she'd ever see him alive. If you like historic murals, then downtown Charleston is the place to be. 
They've got a mural depicting their historic downtown. They've got a store with a mural of an older store. They've already got a historic courthouse, but they've also got a mural of a courthouse that preceded it. They've got a mural of famous people who came from Charleston. They've got a mural of an infamous riot that took place there during the Civil War. And then, of course, there's the Lincoln murals. One where he's disembarking from the train the day he came to say goodbye to his stepmother, and another where he's embracing his stepmother for the last time. You know, it wasn't just Lincoln's family connections that were complicated. He tried several cases in Charleston, including one that muddies Lincoln's legend. In 1847, a Kentucky slave owner named Robert Matson moved with his slaves to Illinois, a free state. Soon after, the slaves escaped and fell under the protection of local abolitionists. The slave owner sued for their return. Both parties petitioned the now popular Lincoln for his help, and Lincoln stepped in, choosing to represent the slave owner. For many years, the town of Oakland in northeast Coles County restaged the trial in a play titled Lincoln's Trials and Tribulations, and they used Joe as their Lincoln. I told him that I hated the thought of those who had escaped bondage being taken back to their unrequited toil. But I think he may have forgotten that I also said that the part of the Constitution that provides for the return of runaway slaves was as much to be obeyed as any part of the Constitution, and that to flout any part of the Constitution was to risk tearing the fabric of all our liberties. So, the great emancipator defending a slave owner. At the time, his detractors used it against him, and many still do today. I often see it referenced in articles that try to prove some kind of hypocrisy on Lincoln's part. But, at least the story has a happy ending. Lincoln lost that case. Joe takes us through Charleston to the northwest side of town, to the fairgrounds that hosted one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. He points out that this is the oldest continuously operating fairgrounds in the United States. The key to that is the continuously operating. You can't just say oldest because there might be some olders that weren't operating continuously. There's a small museum here commemorating the debate, and there are two statues immortalizing the debaters in bronze. They appear to be life-size, but Douglas looks so very, very short. I know he really was short, but sometimes I think sculptors shortchange him a little. Maybe not. I didn't have a measuring tape on me. The statues depict the two debaters standing behind tree stumps and facing one another. Lincoln's hand is raised, open, as if he's calmly concluding some fine point. Douglas watches, his clenched fist resting on the stump as he waits his turn. I like what the sculptor did here, using the hands to represent how people often interpreted the two men's personalities in real life. The debate took place on September 18, 1858. It was the fourth of seven debates and attracted around 15,000 people. It was a homecoming for Lincoln because everybody knew his family. They knew him from his travels on the judicial circuit, so they welcomed him like a native son. He and Douglas arrived by train in Mattoon, 12 miles due west of Charleston. They made a big spectacle of parading slowly to the debate site. Each procession swarmed with banners, streamers, brass bands, horses, carriages, and floats. Douglas had a flat car with a cannon that was fired as the party progressed toward Charleston. Their followers swelled as they drew near, the line extending as far as the eye could see. Harold Holzer called it a breathtaking display of pageantry. Within the city, Republicans hefted an 80-foot banner depicting young Lincoln on a wagon pulled by oxen. It read, Old Abe, 30 years ago. This was to show that Abe was just a regular guy, just one of them, a hard-working down-home settler, a precursor to his rail-splitter image. I asked Joe what we needed to know about this debate. What made the Charleston debate special? Actually, the Charleston debate was probably the dull, dullest of the, of the seven. <laughs> okay, so it's not a well-known debate. Nobody's claiming that it shaped the future of the nation like the Freeport debate, which I covered in the last episode. But it's worth noting some things Lincoln says here. And, taken out of context, Lincoln's words complicate his legacy. Lincoln was on the defense after a poor debate at Jonesboro just three days prior. Douglas had been trying to get him to admit that he believed in equality of the races, something not even strong abolitionists believed in. Freeing the slaves was one thing, but giving them equal status under the law, the right to vote, to run for office, some of the most progressive minds in the country hadn't moved that far forward. So, right here, I'd like to share an excerpt from the beginning of Lincoln's speech. It's not going to be what you expect. And I thought it would be interesting if it was read by someone who had never read it before. So I grabbed our show intern, Brian, who is a history major at Northern Illinois University. I totally sprung this on him, so please bear with him. Is it on? Yeah, it's going. All right. Is it this one right here? Uh, it's just that one. Okay. I will say, then, I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. 
that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I as much as any other man am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. And what, what did you think of that, having never read that before? Um, <laughs> shocking. Yeah. That was super, Abe Lincoln said that? Yeah. I was, it was uncomfortable. I did not think that Abraham Lincoln would ever say that. Yeah, shocking, uncomfortable. That's a good reaction, unless you're racist, I guess. But those are Lincoln's words. That's how he opened the Charleston debate. You don't see those lines engraved on too many walls or statues. But the context here is important. Imperative, actually. Lincoln knows his audience. He knows that in this part of the state, most Illinoisans, even some of the most ardent abolitionists, are against equality. He knows that even the suggestion of equality could derail this election and his entire political career. Of course, that's giving Lincoln the benefit of the doubt. It's entirely possible that he believed this, which would have put him in line with how many people in the country thought at that time. And if that's true, then it also shows us the evolution of Lincoln, how his thoughts on the issue changed over time. But in this scenario... Lincoln's legacy is actually defended by his rivals. After the debate, conservative newspapers accused him of pandering to central and southern Illinois voters, just telling them what they wanted to hear. They knew, they claimed, that he really did believe in racial equality, and he was just lying about it to steal votes. Many scholars have pointed out that Lincoln did not spend a lot of time thinking about what would happen when the slaves were freed. He was singularly focused on freeing them. This idea is captured in a scene in Steven Spielberg's 2012 film, Lincoln, when Lincoln shares a brief but poignant exchange with Elizabeth Keckley, a former slave who was Mary Lincoln's personal dressmaker and confidant. What you are to the nation, what will become of you once slavery's day is done, I don't know. What my people are to be, I can't say. I never heard any ask what freedom would bring. Freedom is first. Freedom is first. That could sum up Lincoln's whole approach to slavery. Freedom first, then tackle the rest. But you can't have freedom first if you never make it to the White House. There is a more often quoted line from Lincoln's Charleston debate speech. It comes in response to a banner that was held up by Democrats before the debate. It had a picture of a white man and a black woman standing with their mulatto child, and it read, Negro Equality. Here's Brian again. I do not understand that because I do not want a Negro woman for a slave... I must necessarily want her for a wife. My understanding is that I can just let her alone. A lot better than the first quote. Right. Yeah, that fits a little better into the Lincoln mold. Once African Americans are free, can't we just leave them alone? <sighs> now I'm thinking about Jim Crow laws and getting depressed. Let's do something more upbeat. We've got one more stop on this whirlwind Lincoln tour. About five miles east of Charleston is Lincoln Springs Resort. This 130-acre retreat has a large dining facility, a mini-golf course, a lake, campgrounds, and the world's tallest Abraham Lincoln statue. The bad part? You can't go. It's closed. It's been closed since 2011. The good part? It's for sale. I tell Joe we have to go see this statue, and then Joe gives me his take on it. At the time it was made, it was the world's largest Lincoln statue. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, but that's still true. Uh... It has my vote for the world's ugliest Lincoln statue. <laughs> From looking online, Joe is not the only one who feels this way, but I am undeterred. We head there to meet Jerry Gradesky, owner of Farm and Lake Houses Real Estate, which operates statewide and specializes in large and, shall we say, more unique properties, such as a 130-acre resort with the world's tallest Abraham Lincoln statue on it. I'll go ahead and tell you, it's kind of a weird place. It's actually a beautiful location, but getting to it is weird. We have to drive down a long stretch of gravel road sandwiched between the Charleston Speedway and the Charleston Stone Company, a rock quarry. There's a fence on each side, topped with barbed wire. You feel kind of like you're driving toward a maximum security prison. But as we near the end of this corridor, we can see him. Big, tall Abe Lincoln. Only, he doesn't actually seem that big. Until we get closer and realize Abe is standing down a slope in a little depression. It's not until you realize he's as tall as the full-grown trees around him that his true height comes into perspective. 
This is Presidential Abe, so he's got the beard, he's got the stovepipe hat. He has one hand raised in the air, finger pointed straight up, as if he's caught in mid-speech. In his other hand, pressed to his chest, he holds a rolled-up document, its contents unclear. This is also an exaggerated Abe. He's very tall, extremely thin. He's a cartoon, a caricature. We meet Jerry outside the empty banquet hall. He gives a quick rundown of the property history. Lincoln Springs Resort initially started as a multifunctional resort for people that had some learning disabilities or physical disabilities. Over the years, it was thriving, and then through a series of unfortunate circumstances, that owner went bankrupt, and this became available. Jerry runs through the resort's many qualities, that it was also a popular restaurant for many years, that it has a banquet hall, two bars, the mini golf course, a private lake with boat dock and gazebo. It even has its own water purification plant. It's just waiting for the right buyer. And that person is just going to also happen to want or be okay with having a 72-foot Lincoln statue on the property. That's, uh, that's the showcase. That's what it's mostly known for. We head over to Abe's Garden. That's what the sign says over the walkway that takes you down to Lincoln. Jerry tells me he's been doing some research on Lincoln since I called. I, I didn't realize Abe Lincoln was, what, 50, 56 when he died. Yeah, so this statue's almost as old as he was. Survived uh, more gunshots than the president did, though. Oh, you're getting this on tape, too. <laughs> <laughs> the statue was built in 1968 and erected by Lake Charleston. It was an attempt to draw in tourists, to capitalize on all the Lincoln history already in the area. But even then, people thought it was ugly. The interesting thing is they built it so that they could transport it. It wasn't really built per any of Lincoln's guidelines of his personal physique. It was actually designed so they could truck it here in one piece and maintain all the roads and highways accordingly. So hence, we probably have a little bit slimmer Abe Lincoln than he really was. At the present location, the statue was restored, fell into disrepair, and was restored again. As Jerry mentioned, it's been shot several times. It had a large bullet hole in the cheek that was eventually repaired. But the biggest issues have been with the giant upraised finger. Well, the finger was either fell off, blown off, broke off or something, and they attached it. And the, the joke is I think they put it maybe on a little bit the wrong way because it looks very peculiar. From certain angles, it looks like you slip it in the bird. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry did tell me that the current owner offered the statue to the state but was informed that they didn't have the resources to deal with it. He also doesn't have plans to restore the statue himself, but is hoping that when the right buyers come along, they will return it to its original glory. We head down the path leading to the statue, and I notice there are six display areas that look like little shelters. I asked Jerry what those were for. They used to have, uh, there was a, an artist that sculpted various renditions of Abe Lincoln, and they used to have that in each location so that people could walk through and see different renditions of Abe. I haven't seen them personally, but I hear they are more of an artistic rendering rather than, you know, realistic. I did some digging and found out those statues were commissioned by the resort's previous owners in 2006. They hired a local artist, a former high school football coach who had taken up chainsaw carving in his retirement. He carved 12 statues out of oak, each one depicting a different period in Lincoln's life. Those statues are gone now. The new owner removed them after purchasing the property. One is located in Morton Park in Charleston. The whereabouts of the others remains unknown. We arrive at the base of the statue, and it's big. You could make a comfortable bed out of one of Lincoln's shoes. I'm a little worried about that finger. I'm not sure how stable it is up there, because up close you can see the age, the paint peeling off the fiberglass shell. Even still, Lincoln looms large. Staring straight up at that tall, tall statue, I'm thinking about how much of Lincoln's life and afterlife crossed paths with Charleston. From his days as a young pioneer settling in the unsettled West, to this statue possibly giving the finger to all the people driving down Illinois Route 16, there is a lot of Lincoln to take in here. But it represents a very complicated side of Lincoln. His relationship with his family wasn't stellar. He chose his law cases in a pragmatic, not moralistic way. He played the political game so well because he was good at telling people what they wanted to hear, not necessarily what he believed. His views on race often aligned with the times, even though we always want him to be ahead of the curve. And for the record, I like the giant statue. It's got a simplistic, folky feel to it. It doesn't fill me with awe like the Cornell statue in Freeport that we discussed last episode, but it makes me happy, like in the same way a bobblehead Lincoln makes me happy. Don't get me wrong, it is ugly, but by his own admission, so was Abraham Lincoln. Now let's sit down and have a drink with Joe Woodard, the man behind the beard. Beard? Hmm. Now let's sit down and have a drink with Joe Woodard, the Lincoln before the beard. <laughs> <laughs> 
Joe doesn't drink beer, and I knew this going into the interview, so instead of visiting a brewery, we visit Jackson Avenue Coffee in downtown Charleston, just east of the courthouse square. I don't normally drink coffee, but today's Lincoln hunting has had some highs and lows, so stimulants seem like a good idea. I grab an iced coffee and Joe orders a regular coffee. His comes in a really big mug, like soup bowl big. He prepares it to taste, and we're ready to go. As we sit down with our drinks, Joe starts telling me about his most recent project, a documentary he worked on for the company Witnessing History out of Lexington, Kentucky. Well, the working title is Under the Declaration, All Men Are Equal, Abraham Lincoln in Illinois, 1830-1860. I suspect they'll pick something shorter (laughs) by the time they release it. And how did they get in touch with you? Well, I I was emailed. I think they saw me on the website and... Probably they focused on that I was one of the ones without a beard. And during the period that they're featuring, Lincoln didn't have that famous beard. He didn't grow the famous beard until actually after he was elected. He grew it between the time of the election and the time of his inauguration. So whenever you see a Lincoln with a beard at a Lincoln-Douglas debate reenactment, that's historically inaccurate. True, true. Whether it had anything to do with his decision or not, a little girl named Grace Bedell in uh, New York State wrote him a letter and suggested that he grow whiskers to, quote, fill out his thin face. And on his way to Washington City, he took a very circuitous route, which included Westfield, New York. And he actually got to meet Grace Bedell, and she pulled on the famous whiskers. It's a great story. Let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Why don't you give us your name and where you're from? My name is Joe Woodard. I live at Hazeldale, Illinois. And what is Hazeldale near? Hazeldale is in Cumberland County, Illinois. Cumberland County is the smallest in area and also the smallest in population. Hazeldale is nine miles from Greenup, Illinois. It's also nine miles from Casey, Illinois. So you're just isolated out there in Hazeldale. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hazeldale is one of those settlements with a great future behind it. At one time, Hazeldale had a bank. It was a stop on a a railroad, and it had a creamery, a wool warehouse, and two stores and a barber shop. And now a restaurant is its only business house at this time. Now, were you born there? I was not. I only moved there in 1985. Where did you live before that? Oak Park. I've lived in town. I've lived in country. I like living in the country better than living in town. I'd always wanted to be a farmer. Closest I could afford to get to it was uh, raising hogs. The place where I now live, I bought that with the idea of going into the hog business. And I did for a time until I'd lost enough money that I decided I shouldn't do that anymore. I was recently asked, did I not like hogs anymore? I said, I liked them fine. I just didn't like losing money on them. So how did you go from living in Oak Park to deciding you really wanted to raise hogs? My grandfather was a farmer. That just always appealed to me. My father also was a farmer for a time, uh, among other different business ventures. And was that in Illinois? My father's farm was, was in Illinois, in southern Illinois, in Franklin County. My grandfather's farm was in western Kentucky near Morganfield. Morganfield, Kentucky is where I was born. My first year, according to what my parents told me anyway, I lived in Kentucky for 19 months while I was in Uncle Sam's army. I was in Kaiserslautern, Germany. And then before that, I was a year at Fort Carson, Colorado. Except for that first year and the time I was in the service, I've lived in Illinois. How did you end up in Germany? I was in the Quartermaster Corps, and something about the table of organization and equipment said that they needed people with my military occupational specialty at the 593rd Supply and Service Company in Germany, worse than they needed me at the 40th Supply and Service Company in Fort Carson. So I went where I was told to go. And what year would that have been? 1974, I believe. I was in the Army from 1973 to 1976. And then what did you do when you came back to Illinois? I went to college at Parkland College in Champaign County. And then I had some 
factory jobs, and I had a job working at a cemetery at Forest Park. What put you on the path to Abraham Lincoln? I've always been interested in history. I can't remember a time when I wasn't. And when the Living History program was going on at Lincoln Log Cabin, which was about 20 miles from my house, I, I came and started participating in that. Evelyn Rooney, who was the secretary of the site, noticed my resemblance to Abraham Lincoln and asked me if I'd like to take on the role. They made my first Lincoln suit, and I made my first appearance as Lincoln in an event for Lincoln Log Cabin. So that's what got my start, and subsequently I started doing it for other groups, other places, got my own suit and my own hat, and uh, got established in doing that. About what year did you start portraying Lincoln? 1989 was my first appearance. They wanted, wanted me to portray Lincoln as he was in 1845. As it happened in that year, I was the age that Lincoln was in 1845. Now, at Lincoln Log Cabin, year after year, it's always been 1845 as far as their interpretation goes. But for the rest of the world, time marches on, including for Joe Woodard. So <laughs> I'm considerably older now. In fact, I'm now older than Abraham Lincoln was when he died. When did you start branching out and making appearances as Lincoln outside of the Log Cabin historic site? Within a year or two, I've uh, appeared at a number of other Lincoln-related historic sites, including at New Salem. That was one of the first places I went. Subsequently, I've been at, at Vandalia State House. One appearance at the uh, Old State Capitol in Springfield, and one appearance for a Halloween event at the Lincoln home. <laughs> They had me come out and uh, stand in front of Lincoln's house and give out Halloween candy. <laughs> you are actually the first Lincoln presenter that I have met who does not have a beard. How has that helped you? Well, it's let me specialize. And for places like Vandalia, where Lincoln was in those pre-beard days, and if they want to make it a point that Lincoln didn't have that beard for most of the time he was in Illinois, then having a, an unbearded Lincoln presenter is good for them. Now, sometimes I get contacted to make a Lincoln appearance, and I let them know that I don't have a beard. And I say, I don't want this to come as an unpleasant surprise when I get there. And they tell me, no, they, they really wanted a presidential Lincoln. And I said, well, that's fine. And I said, it's good we got that straightened out first. Have you ever grown the Lincoln beard, just to try it on? I have a few times. I've gone back and forth. On at least one occasion, they contacted me in November to appear for something in February, and they specifically wanted a bearded Lincoln. I said, well, I can try growing them. <laughs> and so I did. And uh, I said, when the time comes, if I'm not satisfied with it, I can send you a picture and we can make adjustments as needed. When I first began doing it, my whiskers came out like a, like a discouraged lawn, so even when I tried to grow a Lincoln beard, it didn't look very Lincoln-esque. In recent years, my whiskers are fuller and more Lincoln-esque, except that they're white now. <laughs> so if I'm going to appear as Lincoln, I have to color those whiskers. What do you do when you're not Abraham Lincoln? I work part-time for a dealer in agricultural chemicals. How long have you done that? I think seven or eight years now I've been working for him. Does he know that you also moonlight as Abraham Lincoln? Oh, yeah. Just about everybody around Hazeldell knows I do that. When you started performing as Abraham Lincoln, did you do any kind of research to prepare for the role? I mean, you already worked at the log cabin site, but did you do any other kind of research? Well, I, I've done a lot of reading about Abraham Lincoln, and especially I tried to read his own words. Certainly you want to read biographies, but there's the collected works of Abraham Lincoln, which have many of his speeches and letters, and that's what I most recommend for anyone who's attempting to present Lincoln, is to immerse yourself 
in his own words. Do you have a favorite Lincoln biography or book about Lincoln besides his papers? Well, this isn't a biography, but it's a work about Lincoln. It's a book in a question-and-answer format. The author is Gerald Prokopowitz. I hope I'm saying his name right. The title is, Did Abraham Lincoln Own Slaves? And Other Frequently Asked Questions. Do you ever work with a Mary Todd? On a few occasions, not very often. I did a one-act play that I wrote at the National Historic Site at the old federal courthouse in St. Louis. They had an Independence Day celebration, and the three characters were Abraham Lincoln, Stephen Douglas, and Mary Lincoln. And then there have been a few occasions which were what I call grip and grins, or shake and bakes, depending on the weather, where I'm just supposed to move around, mingle with the crowd, and look picturesque. And they wanted me to have a Mary Lincoln. My wife has tried it. She got herself a dress, and she wrote a short presentation, and I thought it was quite quite good, but she found she did not enjoy first-person interpretation. You said you wrote your own play? It was a one-of. To give a short outline, I took some liberties with history in that I portrayed Abraham Lincoln having a one-on-one meeting with Stephen Douglas, saying basically, come on, Douglas, what are you really thinking about with this Kansas-Nebraska Act? Don't you realize what kind of trouble this is going to cause? And had Lincoln promising, this is all off the record, I won't use any of this against you, I just want to know for my own satisfaction. So Douglas is justifying himself one-on-one to Lincoln. I have to cut in here for a quick explanation. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 was a controversial bit of legislation proposed by Senator Douglas to allow the people of new territories to vote for themselves whether or not they wanted to allow slavery. What this did was open up the possibility of slavery in territories in which it had already been prohibited by the Missouri Compromise of 1820. What this did was open up the possibility of slavery all the way to the Pacific Coast. Douglas's stated intent was to drive westward expansion, which he did. People both for and against slavery flooded into the territories, often with bloody results. And whether he intended it or not, Douglas further divided an already divided nation. The Kansas-Nebraska Act had another major historical impact. It pulled Lincoln back into politics. At this point, he was a wealthy and respected lawyer who, according to some scholars, had hung up his political hat. But he was so incensed by Douglas's actions that he dove right back into the fray. In October 1854, he gave a speech in Peoria denouncing Douglas's bill. I cannot but hate it, he said. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world. This was Lincoln's return to politics. Now back to Joe. Then there's a scene where Lincoln is talking to his wife, explaining what just happened in his first unsuccessful run for a United States Senate. And he tells Mary that he's not giving up. The cause of civil liberty is not to be surrendered after one or even a hundred defeats. And that's, that's the last line, which is an actual Lincoln quotation. When you perform Lincoln, do you add something to your voice? Do you tend to change it from your natural voice? And how do you go about arriving at that voice? My Lincoln voice has a more Southern cast than Joe Woodard's voice. Other than that, I don't try to affect a different voice. I'm not a good enough actor to pull off a greater change than that. I don't claim to be an actor. I claim to be a Lincoln presenter. How did you arrive at your Lincoln outfit? Well, I picked the color black because I think that's what most people associate with Lincoln. From the greatest number of photographs of him, he's wearing a dark suit. You can't always be sure of the color in a black and white photograph. thought I was already confusing them with no whiskers, so don't try to throw too many (laughs) changes at them. So that's why I chose the black suit. There is a photograph of Lincoln wearing a white frock coat. Hmm. And you are a member of the Association of Lincoln Presenters, correct? I am. Mm-hmm. And how did you get involved with them? B.F. McLaren, who also presents Lincoln, who, who lives in Charleston, made me aware of the existence of the group and suggested I join. He paid my way to go to the first 
convention, which was in Lexington, Kentucky. That was your first convention or the ALP's first convention? Both. Both. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. I, was, I, I was present at the first convention. Okay. And at that first convention, I was the youngest Lincoln presenter present, but I'm no longer the youngest member. <laughs> A great many of the people who were present at the first convention have passed on to their reward. And do you still continue to go to those conventions each year? I've been to most of them, but not to all of them. I'm not sure whether I'll attend the coming one, which is in Georgia. What if you showed up with a full Lincoln beard? Would that just throw everybody off? I've been to two of them with the beard, and some of them have made positive uh, comments, and others uh, (laughs) have made negative comments. (laughs) Okay. As we covered in our last episode, in 1994, C-SPAN sponsored a series of Lincoln-Douglas debate reenactments, recreating all seven debates at their original locations. This gave a lot of exposure to Lincoln presenters, even launched some new careers. I asked Joe if he was involved with these reenactments. I was involved in the planning here for the Charleston reenactment. B.F. McLaren, that I've mentioned before, who lives in Charleston, he was the Lincoln for that debate. Did he have a beard? Yes, he does. Yeah, he does. He did. And then the next year, they had another event called Lincoln Days, where they had a number of had a number of Lincolns come to Charleston and do their thing out there at the fairgrounds. I think we had eight Lincolns for that. How often would you say you perform as Lincoln now? I, I can't give you a, a figure that would mean anything. I've never solicited business. Not that there'd be anything wrong with doing that if I did. It's just I've never done it. I've always waited for people to come to me and express an interest in having me do something for them. And it just all depends on the number of calls I get. Do people ever react to you when they see you out in public in your full Lincoln garb? <laughs> uh, yes, they do. I, I, I had an engagement in Chicago at a booksellers convention. The publisher of a new Lincoln book had me come and be a sort of a dancing bear at his booth at the convention. Then when I, when I left the convention hall, I, I went and caught the, the L some guy that was drunk said, hey, there's Abraham Lincoln. And an, another bystander, the guy said, yeah, this is Chicago. You see everything here. <laughs> uh, Newt Gingrich was also there at the convention. He had a, a new book out, so he was plugging. He saw me, and he rushed over to shake my hand and shook my hand and said, oh, very appropriate, <laughs> and rushed away. And I I wonder if he thought I was there for him. (laughs) We didn't have a conversation. We just shook hands. Do you have any favorite Lincoln anecdotes that you like to share? Lincoln greatly enjoyed the story that he'd been told by another Whig legislator when he was in Washington serving in the Congress. A man named Tom Corwin told him that he had met a man who had known George Washington. And this man told Tom Corwin that George Washington should, quote, curse like an angel, unquote. (laughs) And Lincoln was delighted to learn that George Washington had cursed. It made George Washington a lot more human. There was um, a a a movie a few years ago, Spielberg. Oh, Spielberg? Was it, yeah, just Lincoln? Yeah. Some of their ALP members were terribly upset that it portrayed Lincoln as cursing. I was not among those who were upset by that. I found it quite likely that there were times when Lincoln did curse. (laughs) I was much more upset by the scene in the movie where it had Lincoln striking his son. Mm. I thought that that did violence to the real character of Abraham Lincoln. Because Abraham Lincoln was well known for keeping his temper in check and uh, restraining himself in the face of great provocation. Lincoln didn't spank his boys when they were young and naughty. So I found it highly unlikely that he would strike his son after his son was a grown man. What do members of the ALP think about books or movies like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter? (laughs) (laughs) Some are amused. (laughs) And uh, some are not. 
I've had some of our members tell me that they were upset because they had children ask, how many vampires did you kill, Mr. President? <laughs> Obviously, we live in very divisive political times right now. Mm -hmm. Would Abraham Lincoln have any encouragement for people today? He could say, truthfully, it was worse in his time because as divided as we are, at least we're not killing one another. At least we're not in the middle of a civil war. As harsh as things as are being said of the current president, rightly or wrongly, worse things were said when Lincoln was the occupant of the White House. They just said terrible things, called him a baboon and uh, a murderer and would-be tyrant. At the Abraham Lincoln Museum, they have a, a little hallway like you go through, and it has political cartoons on the walls, which show Abraham Lincoln in an unfavorable light, and then they have voice recordings of people saying some of those bad things. It's supposed to give you an immersive experience right. of what Lincoln went through. In this day and age, everyone has placed Abraham Lincoln on a giant pedestal. Is there something about who he was as a person that the general public doesn't know? Well, unfortunately, I think there's a tendency to make him into some sort of a plaster saint, which I don't think he would like. He's recorded as talking about biographies to his partner, William Herndon, and faulted a great many biographies that they only said the good things about their subjects and didn't point out the faults. And in some of my presentations, I try to try to make him human. I've been asked, is there anything that I know of that indicates bad character or in Abraham Lincoln? And I've said, I didn't think he treated his wife right in the sense that he made his wife be the disciplinarian. He was never known to, to discipline his sons. He let them misbehave without so much as a reprimand. And I didn't think that that was fair to his wife. I think that probably came from Lincoln being disciplined harshly when he was a boy. As is quite common, we either follow the mistakes that our parents did, make the same ones that our parents did, or we make the opposite. We, trying to avoid falling in one ditch, we fall in the other. That's, that's my own armchair psychoanalysis of Abraham Lincoln. Well, Joe, thanks for doing this. Do a little coffee toast. <laughs> Here's to drinking with Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Abraham. This is the second episode in a row that we have current Lincoln news. So earlier, that land I mentioned, the 40 acres that Lincoln purchased from his father to ensure his father and stepmother always had a place to live? Well, some of that land recently came up for sale. It was part of a much larger parcel, 590 acres, but that included 30 acres of Lincoln's original 40. Another six of the original 40 are part of the Lincoln Log Cabin site. The last four are privately owned. The auction was held, symbolically, on February 12th, Lincoln's 210th birthday. The full 590 acres sold for $3.9 million. What I found most interesting was all the media coverage. This story was everywhere, nationwide. So while there's plenty of Lincoln still going on in this state, it's nice to see that the rest of the country is also fascinated by it. Abraham. Thank you for listening to the Drinking with Lincoln podcast, and thanks to Joe Woodard for coming on the show and giving us a tour of his old stomping grounds, Jerry Gerdeski for coming out and letting us poke around the world's tallest Lincoln statue, and the folks at Jackson Avenue Coffee for letting us use your space. I'd also like to thank our sound engineer, Spencer Tritt, and the show's intern, Brian Mulcrone. This show was produced by WNIJ, Northern Public Radio. Our theme music was provided by Mannequin Torso. You can check out their music and other music from regional and touring bands at another WNIJ show, Sessions from Studio A. I'll drop a link in the show notes, which you can find at WNIJ.org. I'll also link to other information on the people and places we explored in today's episode. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, the NPR One app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And consider leaving us a review. And if there are any Lincoln topics you'd like us to cover, or Lincoln presenters you'd like us to interview, drop us a line at dwlincolnpodcast at gmail.com. That's dwlincolnpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham. Hey, just one more thing. Those chainsaw-carved statues that used to be on display with the world's tallest Lincoln statue? We found them. 
The property owner had moved them to a storage building in Ashmore, just a few miles east of Charleston. Spencer and I were able to go and see them. They're... interesting. Okay, so that's what my dad says when he doesn't know quite what to make of something, or doesn't want to say anything negative. But, yes, they're interesting interpretations of Lincoln. I guess another way to describe them would be folk art? I think that's a way people describe works that are... interesting? Either way, it was an ambitious project. The statues complement the world's tallest Lincoln statue in their uniqueness, and I hope they're not locked away forever. We'll throw some pictures up on our website at WNIJ.org. The sadder the man, the harder the drinking. So whatever happened to Abraham Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that satisfies your curiosity, and I bid you a good day.